This, this would be a farewell message. Well, it's not. Uh, I would have to cry the whole time if I were doing that, and there's time for that later. Um, uh, but this is a message about vision. You know, vision is a word that we've used a lot in the last 15 years, and perhaps before I got here, and I'm sure Pastor Brandon has, he may even have different terms for it, but I know some of his vision for how you are going to move forward in the Lord. And I am blessed by knowing that. Vision, the, the definition that I find most compelling is this, seeing tomorrow so powerfully it changes today. We've talked about that a lot around here, but mostly vision as it relates to our congregation. What are the things that God is calling us to change in order to reach the future that he has defined for us? And the first part of that is just figuring out what is that? And I can tell you that the elder board processed those questions for a very long time. And they will be continuing to process those questions going forward. Because once you think you're about to get there, you don't. The vision changes based on what you see today and tomorrow. But this message is really not about the vision for this church. This message is really about your vision and my vision. The life that God sees for you and for me going into the future. I actually can remember uh, the first time that I read this book, this passage. It was um, in April. I was about 18 years old, and it was 50 years ago. And why do I remember it so poignantly? It's because um, I was sitting outside the gas station where I worked. Bright, sunny day. It was a Sunday. I was sitting in my chair, and, and uh, you know, there weren't a lot of cars coming in for gas. It was such a beautiful day in April. I think they were all out driving their cars. Maybe they filled up in the morning. I don't know. But I had only a handful of customers, and so I had this opportunity, and I started the book of Philippians for the first time. I had never opened it before. I was reclining in the chair, doing the things that we tell our children not to do, leaning it back on two legs. Uh, it did not fall, so I was very fortunate. And um, I had only been reading the Bible for about six months. And I knew nothing. Nothing. I had people who were guiding me, um, trying to take care of me. But you know, uh, you talk about drinking from a fire hose. They were trying not to do that with me. And so there were things, that, the thing that I knew to do was read. Just read it. But I don't get it. Just read it. You will. And um, so I knew to do that. And I knew this was Paul, the apostle, writing the book. I knew a little bit about him because I had read Acts. And so I read parts of his story that he tells, that are, they're told there. Uh, and I knew he was reading, writing to some people called the Philippians, and I had no clue who they were. It, they're talked about in the book of Acts, but somehow the first time through I, I missed it, uh, which often happens even, even today. Um, and he's talking about himself. And he's talking about his former life. Circumcised on the eighth day. Well, I don't really know that why that was a big deal for the Jews. They all were. And if they weren't, Moses said in the law, said, if you're not circumcised, you're not part of the kingdom. You're not, you're not part of Israel. 
you're out. So nobody was going to do that to their kid. And, uh, and yet, for some reason, that along with being part of the people of Israel. You know, this is his pedigree he's talking about. God's chosen people. He was one of them. Of the tribe of Benjamin, why in the world would that be important? Well, it was one of the two, quote, good tribes. There was a point in time when the, the northern ten tribes split up from the south ones, and they became very decadent and, and just kind of left the worship of the Lord and all of the truth and all those kind of things. And, you know, after several centuries of that, God wiped them out. Uh, he allowed the Assyrians to come in and just take them out. So he was part of Benjamin, Benjamin and Judah. I mean, they were the good guys, right? They were living in Judea and all these kind of things. It was close to Jerusalem. They continued to worship, kind of, but later on, they lost their way as well. So why would that be something that is cool? And then he said, as to the law, a Pharisee. And that's important. We're talking about huge achievements, a bunch of education that just goes on and on and on. And he had some of the best educators that were available in those days to teach him the Pharisee way. He memorized major portions of the law of Moses, and then he memorized the way the Pharisees had twisted it and turned it into something that God never intended, into a law of bitterness and no mercy and criticism. The words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength had all but disappeared from their culture. Still there, but not much. And love your neighbor as yourself. Not for the Pharisees. Their neighbors were narrowed down to the other Pharisees. And not their neighbors. And any of my confirmation children, I feel like putting them on, on, on the spot, but the fact is, who's your neighbor? It's, it's everybody. It's not just the people that live next door and across the street. It is literally everybody. And as to zeal, zeal for his faith, zeal for all that he had learned, he was a persecutor of the church, and he was a major persecutor of the church. And here's the one that I like. As to righteousness under the law, remember the law that he had learned was not just the law, but the messed up law, blameless. You see, the Pharisees had netted out the law in such a way in their own interpretation that it actually can be done on your own effort. And they declared themselves righteousness on the basis of that. We today, we call that self-righteousness. And, you know, we see self-righteous people. You might even think of me that way sometimes because I'm not right. And, but at the same time, it was never God's, in, no, no, not God's plan. I can't love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength on my own. I've been living with Jesus for 50 years. I'm still not there. And so if we're expecting to be there now at this point in time, it's not going to happen. And that's why we need Jesus every single day. And the whole neighbor thing, love your neighbor as yourself, I'm not even sure how much I love me very often. And I know for sure that I don't love my neighbors as, love, as much as I love me on my worst day. But then 
Jesus spoke into his life. Paul was on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. He had letters of authorization from the chief priests and the scribes authorizing him to spread his own bitterness and persecution throughout the church, I mean, the, 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 yes, the church in Syria. Not just Judea, not just Israel. And Jesus called him by name, and this is in Acts chapter 9, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Thank you, I needed that. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul. Now, Saul was his Hebrew name. Uh, later on, he went by his Roman name, which was Paul. I'd love to tell you that I'm named after him, but I'm not. My parents didn't know anything about him. Saul, why are you persecuting me? God, Jesus, spoke from heaven, spoke his name, asked him this question. The people around him heard the voice and they said that it thundered. Must have been pretty loud. And Paul was at that very moment, he fell to the ground and was struck blind. And the others who were with him had to lead him by the hand into the city. Evidently they were nearby. Or maybe not, I don't know. And then he sat three days. No sight, no food, no water. He refused the food and the water because he was living in this sightless state. I can't help wondering, what, we, what was he thinking about during those three days? Was he thinking about his birthright? Was he thinking about all of the legalistic accomplishments that he had, the zeal for persecuting the church? Was he thinking about how superior his advancement was among the Pharisees? Beyond all of his peers, everything I have devoted my life to, it is all wrong. How can I have gotten it that bad? Have you ever realized that when you, when you were completely wrong about something and you didn't know or didn't want to believe it, and then in the process you really hurt somebody as you were living out that being wrong thing, that was Paul. That was Paul. And it came on instantly. And I suspect that he was living with that reality all of his life. In 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. He wrote that book years and years later. And again, in 1 Timothy, he wrote really almost towards the, the end of his career, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I believe the reality of what he had done all those years prior never quite left him. He knew he was forgiven. He moved on. He believed the truth that his sins are removed as far as the east and from the west. And yet at the same time, that reality, I believe, was always trying to sneak up on him, which it does. See, that early stuff was Paul's vision for his life, to stamp out the church. And it was rooted in bitterness and evil. So now what? 
Now it's time for a compelling new reality, and most of us, and perhaps all of us, have come to that point in our life, and perhaps many times. All that stuff that made me significant in the past, it's now all lost. It's all gone. But it wasn't just the Jewish birthright stuff and, and the persecution and being a Pharisee. No, he considers all things lost. Every bit of personal advantage, every bit of wealth, every bit of superior knowledge, every bit of worldly wisdom, all lost through the overpowering greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Overpowering greatness. It's worded in our translations a little different than that. This is the translation according to me. I've been pondering his use of the word loss. These are not just things that he had given up on his own. In fact, I wonder if it's even possible to give up these things. These are things that he had been freed from by Jesus himself. Jesus removed them from him. They can't get in his way anymore because they are all just rubbish. He no longer had an artificial righteousness. He wanted a whole different kind of righteousness, the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness of God himself, righteousness that we can't do, righteousness that we can only be given, that we can receive by faith. This is his amazing new reality. You know, verse 10 is, has always been a very compelling verse for me. That day, over 50 years ago, was the first time I read it. And God spoke to me directly through his words. As a very young Christian... Um, even though I had been reading his word. This was the first time that he spoke directly to me and not through the voice of others. Even when God first whispered his grace into my heart and I believed in him and I was saved by him, God's words were being read and explained by someone else. This was different. There was no one else around not even cars buying gas. I heard him deep in my soul. I didn't hear his actual voice, but I knew who was talking. And he brought me to this, and I had to read it again and again. Everything about me, every advantage, everything that had made, made me important was gone. that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Wait, what? What does that even mean? Yes, I know Christ and I knew him that day. I had known him personally for six months and I know him even more right now. But what I have come to realize is that there's never end to the knowing. The constant renewing and the knowing more and more I didn't see it that day, but I see it now. And the power of his resurrection, um, let's see. It took me decades to even begin to get that. 
You see, the power of, the, of his resurrection, that is the power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead. That's big stuff. Big stuff. And that is the power that God had to use to change my stone-cold, selfish heart into a heart that could love him and love you and love all around us and finally, there's this idea of sharing in his sufferings. That one took even more decades to even approach some kind of an understanding. The Greek word for share is participate. What does that mean? I can't participate in the cross with Jesus. I mean, he suffered on the cross. He suffered before the cross. He suffered on the cross. And he saved us on the cross. I can't participate in that. I can only receive it as a gift. So what does it mean? You see, Jesus' primary suffering wasn't the cross. His big-time suffering was looking into a broken world and seeing all the people who are suffering there. All the hurting people who are broken-hearted struggling and we know who they are it's even we who are doing that sometimes can we do that can we share participate in those sufferings can we look at a world without judgment can we look at a world and our automatic response is forgiveness and mercy? He's given it to us. And there are so many more. And God has chosen us to be his arms and legs and heart in this world. Not just to reveal the truth about him, but to reveal who he is to people. To be forgiving. And let that be the first response to what we see. To live in sadness because the world so, in so many ways has rejected him. And to live in another kind of reality that says there's a shot for everybody that's still there. There's still a shot. And God would like us to be a part of his sufferings for those who need him. That by any means possible I may attain, attain the resurrection from the dead. That word attain there, it means arrive. You know, I, I worked in business for 30 years and most of you know that and it was uh, corporate companies and things like that and there were times, especially in the 70s and 80s when uh, some of us young whippersnappers would say, yep, I've arrived now. I'm on the track, you know, going to be a vice president. Never got there myself. But this whole idea of arrival, there is one arrival for us and only one. And that is that on our last day, in our last moment, we will be in his presence forever. That's arrival. 
and the only one that matters. I saw people that I worked with that did become vice presidents and even higher levels than that. They passed me, they were brighter, smarter, stronger, who knows what, better connected. And then there were so many of them that fell later on in all different kinds of ways. And if, we're true, if, we're, if we tell ourselves the truth, and I did then learn to, I guess I should say, that wasn't for me because I knew I could never get there. I could never arrive in earthly things. But my arrival in his presence is guaranteed by Jesus. No one will ever take it away. Father, Lord, this became Paul's new vision, his compelling new reality and vision for his life, that I may know you and the power of your resurrection and share in your sufferings for a broken world. And Lord, there are many, many other ways that we can live in the scriptures and, and find ways to have new vision and things like that, but this is one that I pray that you will make mine going forward. And along with all the other good things that we might aspire to, let us be what Paul became. Focused on Christ, living in his vision. Let us live in your vision for our lives in your name. Amen.